You're in the water loop. Waterloop episode number 120, Tracking the Tides with Tech. Coastal communities need accurate, reliable, and accessible information on tides, particularly as they confront rising sea levels and need to adapt to flooding events. But federal gauges are spread out on the U.S. coastline, which leaves extensive areas in between without precise predictions and real-world tracking of tides. That vital information gap can be closed using low-cost sensors, as discussed in this episode with Brian Glazer and Nicole Elko, co-founders of Hohonu. They explain that work to restore ancient Hawaiian fish ponds revealed the need for ultra-precise tidal data, and how it led to a network of sensors being established across the U.S. southeast coast. Brian and Nicole also talk about the accuracy provided during recent king tides, the variety of people that can benefit from improved tidal predictions, and the broader push to democratize access to ocean data. Before the conversation starts, I want to mention that Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet made possible in part by grants from the Walton Family Foundation and Spring Point Partners. Waterloop is also supported by sponsors High Sierra Showerheads and Hydroloop. I'm going to share a little bit about these companies that are advancing water sustainability and then start the podcast. Thanks for listening. Waterloop. Drought and water scarcity are getting very serious in many parts of the United States, particularly in the West, where water supplies in the Colorado River Basin are at all-time lows. It is time for game-changing solutions at every level, including in homes and businesses. Enter Hydroloop. It's a water recycling system that takes the water from showers and washing machines and cleans it so it can be used again. Water recycling systems should become a standard item in every single home and building, just like climate control and heat pumps. Hydroloop is an innovative solution for new houses, but it is also a perfect fit for hotels, athletic clubs, universities, and more. It's time for every new building to have its own gray water recycling system. With Hydroloop, you can use water twice. Learn more at hydroloop.com. Plastic pollution is a huge problem in our environment and in our water. Unfortunately, it's everywhere, and we've got to do what we can to reduce the plastic that's in our society. This stuff takes hundreds of years to break down, and it's made with fossil fuels, which just drives climate change. That's why I'm a big fan of the solid metal construction of High Sierra showerheads. There's no plastic involved. They're made with solid plated brass, stainless steel, and heavy-duty aluminum. Even the seals and hoses are made from silicone rubber. So again, no plastic in High Sierra showerheads. That's unlike the competitors out there in the market, which have a lot of plastic involved. Often the metal you see is just a thin layer covering plastic. Another advantage of this solid metal construction is durability. High Sierra showerheads are simply going to last a long time. You can get 20% off using promo code LOOP20 at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop. 
Welcome to Waterloo. This is Travis. Going to talk about tracking the tides for this episode. Joined by two guests, I have Brian Glazer. He is an associate professor at the University of Hawaii and co-founder and CEO of Hohonu. And he used to be my upstairs neighbor in a condo complex when I lived in Kaneohe on Oahu. Uh, who know? Who knew that we would cross paths this way like 13, 14 years later? So Brian, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also have Nicole Elko. She is science director at the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and a co-founder at Hohonu. Nicole, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. And I think you are uh, a, a somewhat neighbor of mine just down the coast, right? I'm up in Wilmington, North Carolina. You're da- down in the Charleston area. That's right. Yes. Okay. All right, cool. So we have we have some other connections. Good stuff. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking about this topic and and tides and data and tracking and how all this information is collected and used and some really exciting new developments on this front. So let's start just kind of ground floor here. How is data and info on tides? How has it like historically been collected and used? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, anybody who's sat on the beach and looked at the moon or looked at the water, the ocean has probably experienced tides, even if they didn't really dive into kind of the complexities that we'll talk about today. But certainly, you know, people who are out making a living on the water, fishing or moving vessels or operating uh, machinery in harbors or people who are thinking about infrastructure along coastal systems are all effectively tied into the tides somehow by thinking about how resilience against tides or places that are highly eroded um, are interacting with information. And historically, this data comes from really two types of sources. One are installed tide gauges. And so these are installed on piers or docks or harbors with a fair amount of infrastructure and multiple ways of actually measuring water level or from satellites. And so when you hear things from NASA or from NOAA saying that sea level rise has increased over several millimeters this year or last year. That's an average that's accumulated globally from satellites. But when you hear that uh, NOAA is predicting a high tide flooding event in three or four weeks from now, and we expect your area to maybe see a plus one or a plus two foot tide, that's coming from more localized sensors. Okay, gotcha. And how has that been used? What kind of like decision making and so forth, you know, is usually done with with tide data and predictions? So um, coastal communities rely on tide data for a number of reasons. Um, For example, um, something as simple as tourism, which is typically the bulk of um, the economies of many beachfront communities in the U.S. You know, they need to know uh, how, how wide their beaches are and then at high tide, what the capacity might, how that capacity might change at high tide versus low tide. And communities with larger tidal ranges are going to experience those in different ways. Um, another way that communities typically rely on tidal data is for things like coastal flooding, like we've just experienced recently here in um, Charleston, South Carolina, and have uh, numerous times now over the last several years. So that is where those predictions come into play. And the big challenge for the communities to prepare 
for flooding events kind of at the episodic scale as well as the longer term sea level rise is the spatial coverage of those tide sensors that Brian mentioned is so sparse. So the federal uh, tide sensors that are available, for example, here in South Carolina, there are only two or three along the entire state coastline. So each of these beachfront communities, for example, coastal communities just inland from them, they want their own water level data to help them manage um, you know, flooding events that are coming along and just to know what is the water level in my community today? The vast majority of coastal communities cannot answer that question. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I live, obviously, like I said, here in Wilmington, North Carolina, we had all those crazy tides, you know, a couple weeks ago. And um, there were there were preparations even made for that. I was out at the beach this morning and I saw sandbags like protecting a little dune area where I've never, I never imagined like a tide would get up to. Um, I know where I used to live in Annapolis, Maryland, they've had, you know, flooding in their kind of downtown city dock area and they were having to, to plan for that. So um, if, if we get better information on tides, if we have better data, better predictions, better real-time information, what's, what's the value of that? Yeah, it really helps to fill the gaps in the, um, in the information that's needed in order to think about climate resiliency or mm -hmm. coastal resiliency. Um, increasing the granularity for sea level rise data sets by county by county or community by community or, and then ultimately state by state um, facilitates of statewide strategies for how to um, assess what sea level rise projections might be at, on top of these episodic flooding events. And the data historically has been only in the hands of scientists or academics or researchers or state agencies or federal agencies and now we're seeing, because of the accelerated effects that we're seeing from climate change, we see a demand and a need for on-the-ground folks in city and county sustainability offices, which maybe didn't even exist five or ten years ago, to actually have their own data and access to their own data. Mm -hmm. All right, let's, so let's go to kind of the origin story here a little bit with Hohonu and, and your work out there in Hawaii, Brian. Uh, when we talked beforehand, you were explaining about some of the fish ponds uh, and the value of having more precise tide predictions and information. Could you kind of go into how this all came about? Yeah, so I tell people all the time, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a physical oceanographer who studies tides. And so it's been kind of a neat uh, transition from the kinds of things that I feel like I've always done to what we're doing today. But I've always worked closely with a couple of different community nonprofit groups who are engaged in environmental restoration. And here throughout Hawaii, it's also a story of uh, cultural resilience and cultural restoration in Hawaiian fish ponds. And so 400 years ago, there were hundreds of coastal man-made estuaries built for coastal aquaculture, Hawaiian fish ponds. And those places now today are, are largely in disrepair, but there is an effort to, uh, and a resurgence to try to restore them to productivity. Um, they experience very different conditions today, different challenges from land use and climate change today than existed 400 years ago. And in a lot of these places, they don't happen to be next to the nearest NOAA tide gauge. And at the same time, they may be having 100 volunteers coming to help them move rocks or remove invasive species or do some kind of volunteer work in that environmental context um, at low tide. And they need to know when low tide is going to be. When they're building walls, they need to know how high are the highest king tides. 
Um, and so it started off that pathway. It's just being able to build low-cost, affordable sensors that we can then deploy with these community groups without needing the expertise to deploy expensive hardware or measure data because we have tools available to us today for data visualization, data interpretation. Um, and so we really quickly expanded from one small watershed to about 15 different uh, coastal groups throughout Hawaii and then grew from there to uh, realizing, of course, it's, it's not just a problem in Hawaii. It's not just a problem in the U.S. It's ev everywhere there's a coastline or, or a waterway uh, is now experiencing more frequent episodic flooding. Mm. Awesome. And so how did this connection to the southeast coast come about? You are like 5,000 miles away <laughs> from me right now and, and from the, the southeast of the United States. Um, how did that connection come about? And then, you know, what are the shortcomings? You touched on it a bit there, Nicole, shortcomings with tide data tracking on the southeast coast. Yeah, well, Brian and I actually went to high school in uh. Pittsburgh. So, <laughs> and now Pittsburgh's into the mix, yeah. <laughs> next, yeah, next city. No, um, so we also went to college at Penn State together, and um, of course, you know, just kept in touch over the years. A few years, gosh, five years or more ago now, probably. Um, Brian was here in South Carolina. We got together and just started talking shop, and. Uh, Exchange, he was exchanging some stories with me about the sensors, and I said, wow, those are really needed here. You know, this is something that, that the Southeast, in particular, from my experience working with communities, could really benefit from. Um, as Brian likes to tell us, his, the sensor, Honu sensor, is actually um, sensor agnostic, so any kind of measuring device, if you will, could be put into the sensor. Um, and we were kind of landing on the water level measurement as one of the critical uh, pieces to in improving coastal resilience, providing communities with that information that they're, they're so sorely lacking. Um, so, you know, we talked about how the gaps exist along the coastline. Many of the community's critical infrastructure is, uh, you know, it was built more than 50 years ago. Right? Yeah, they took tides into consideration back then, but the fact that tides were rising wasn't uh, really a well-known or accepted fact. So that infrastructure stayed at that base level all this time. And uh, as the tides progressively peak higher and more frequently, we're seeing um, significant impacts to that infrastructure. So that's a big request from communities is we want to know, uh, we want to be able to see not only our real-time water levels, but we also want to see that 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 critical band, right? That red band at the top of the graph that says this is where your critical infrastructure. If the water level gets this high, you need to take action. So it's really a decision support element that's built into the sensor network. Cool. And when we're talking about the southeast coast, as far as this project goes, coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, what, what's the range that we're talking about here for this work? They're all over. Um, for the southeast in particular, we um, span from the northern coast of North Carolina and the Outer Banks all the way down to south, uh, southeast and southwest Florida. But Hohonu sensors are, are all over the U.S. at this point. Cool. All right. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit and what you guys are doing, what this project is, um, and how you're looking to improve this critical tide information. Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, it came from a place of um, 
opportunity in low-cost electronics becoming available, open source programming becoming available. Um, in 2014, the winter of 2014, I kind of put some pieces together. As I mentioned, I'm not an engineer, but I can be dangerous and got started down this pathway. And within a month or so, we were telemetering live oxygen and temperature data back from a coastal fish pond, thinking about you know, low oxygen hypoxia events and how that might affect fish. Um, and that led us really quickly to, to realize that, um, wow, you know, this, is, this is something powerful that we have access to today. A lot of the technology in, um, that has come out of you know, the smartphone industry and Silicon Valley and programming hasn't yet really been applied to environmental sciences or climate change. Uh, and there's neat opportunities there. And so um, we spun up this as a research project initially, but we were getting demand from outside of UH, from outside of researchers, from outside of Hawaii for the same kind of access to environmental data. And effectively what we're doing is the same thing that has been done for wind you know, 25 years ago. Today, you can walk into a, a retail store or one click on the web and you can purchase an anemometer for very cost effective, put it on your roof, download an app and know exactly how fast the wind is blowing at your house. You can't really do that for any kind of water quality or even water, water level parameters. And so that's what we've been set out to be able to change and meet the demand that's out there. We, um, we launched Hohonu deliberately from my lab. Uh, it's a public-private startup. So the University of Hawaii is a partial equity owner. We have two different nonprofits here in Hawaii who are on the cap table as well to really keep that idea of democratizing access to environmental data ingrained in the DNA at Hohonu. Um, we're able to provide the same kinds of data that we've done traditionally here in Hawaii to other communities you know, out there that, that need it. And so that's where um, you know, without Nicole and her expertise in sea level rise and, and coastal uh, threat mitigation, I probably wouldn't have launched Tohonu. And so it was a great partnership to be able to do. And then coupled to the fact that it's so needed, especially in the Southeast. In a lot of ways, Charleston, South Carolina could be considered ground zero mm. for sea level rise and episodic flooding. And once you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you also realize that so is Miami, so is New Jersey, so is Manhattan, so is everywhere. And throughout the, the South Pacific as well. Yeah, I know Charleston is like looking at building like a multi-billion dollar seawall, right? Just because of this this uh, sea level rise issue. I remember I was out at uh, Fort Sumter, like the big historic site, first shots of the, uh, the Civil War. And I'm like, man, this place is going to be kind of gone <laughs> in however many years that takes. So yeah, you're definitely at ground zero. Norfolk, the Norfolk area up in Virginia is having huge issues. Miami, you know, Miami Beach, sunny day flooding, all that kind of stuff. So um, good deal. Well, uh, can we pull up a demo and kind of take a look at the tool and show people uh, how this works? Yeah. Yeah. So what you're looking at is uh, is a map of all the locations. We also ingest all publicly available data. So the blue pins that you see, uh, those are your tax dollars at work. Those are coming from NOAA tide gauges. And then the purple pins are ones that we've also been contracted now to deploy. And um, we're, you know, we are a for-profit uh, public-private startup. And so some of these are, are funded by the federal government. A lot of these are funded by municipalities, nonprofits, all kinds of different customers who want access to that kind of data. But when we zoom in, particularly in South Carolina, one of the things that's illustrated here is that there are only a few NOAA tide gauges between Spring Lake Pier um, or Charleston and, and Savannah. And all of these beach communities really now, again, because of the accelerated effects of climate change and episodic flooding events, need access to this kind of data. And so if we, for example, zoom in to Folly River, 
maybe Nicole, you want to kind of narrate as we, we show some of the data on this one, since that's your, your local home. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. So over the course of the last um, week or so, maybe we can go back and, and kind of show folks a brief perspective. Um, there's been a, kind of a historic flooding event that has impacted Folly Beach and uh, all of the areas in the Charleston Low Country here. And you can see the, the, the peaks that um, Brian's highlighting there on the screen. So um, the, 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 blue, the light blue dashed line is the, are the predictions. So NOAA serves predictions all along the coastline. They only have, as we showed, a few tide sensors, but they serve predictions everywhere, right? You can get a tide chart in, in any local uh, fish house or, or wherever you are along the coast. And those are derived from models. Okay, so the light blue dash line is what people are expecting the tide to be that day. And the difference in what it actually was, which is the purple line that, that's on the top there, was pretty significant. You can see it was uh, about a foot and a half at least higher than, than the predictions. So this event was particularly impactful um, to these barrier island communities along the beachfront. Um, there were some waves associated with the event and happening at the same time. So we had overtopping of beaches and dunes and the marshes were totally flooded uh, with quite a bit of overtopping of the infrastructure on the backside of the island. So overtopping seawalls and, and coastal flooding. Compare that to where we are today. Uh, we're back down to normal tide levels that are, that are hitting the predictions. So these types of sort of look aheads uh, for the communities being able to have access to the information in real time as it's happening, uh, this was really the first time that they were ever able to do that. So the communities were just thrilled to have this level of data available to them during an event like this. Yeah, so I'm really curious, you know, about my firsthand experience. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was out at Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina, walking the dog, playing with the kids, and, you know, saw water where I have never seen it before. You know, way back, even it had inundated the dunes, um, and I was shocked. So what, what was going on a couple weeks ago? That was probably the King Tide event that happened last month. So this time of year is when we have our highest tides during the new moon. Um, you'll be seeing them now periodically every month. And uh, the communities, you know, you're not the only person who I've heard say that. We have heard all up and down the coast. We saw water where we did not see it before. So what's going on? Well, um, when I teach grade schoolers about sea level rise, I hand everyone a nickel. So every, all the kids are excited. They each get a piece of money. And we say, how, how thick is that nickel? Well, it's two millimeters thick. And that is how fast sea level has been rising. Then I say, now turn and put your nickel on top of your partner's nickel. And that is how fast sea level has started to be rising and will be rising, right? So we have always had uh, these larger tides during this time of year on the new moon. Add to that the increase in sea level rise, and we're seeing water where we've never seen it before. Mm. Yeah, never seen it before. And then uh, I am not a scientist, but I've also heard about you know the the what's going on with the moon around 2030, and because of some of that lunar activity, I'll just say there's going to be even higher higher tides. Is that right? Maybe Brian, how how bad did I mangle that? No, you nailed it. There's, there are certain astronomical events, right, that cause our tides every day. And on longer time scales, they also cause a little bit of wobble and change. And 
um, in the locations. And so when you hear estimates of sea level rise acceleration of four millimeters per year or something like that, that's a global average. Some places will experience much faster rates of flooding and sea level rise, and some places will see a decrease in, in sea level. Uh, our good friend and colleague here at the University of Hawaii, Phil Thompson's group at the UH Sea Level Rise Center, uh, are the group that, that authored that paper and, and mm. think about. And that's all they do is eat, sleep, breathe, think about kind of where and how the waters are moving and how global sea level rise is impacting. You mentioned some of the the people that are investing in these these sensors. Could you talk about that a little bit more, who these different entities are and why they're doing it and what they're hoping to do with this improved data? Yeah, so we're still true to our core and our mission. There are researchers who are using these individual gauges as part of basic research um, in, engaged in climate change research and looking at accelerated effects in the coastal zone. There are municipalities, there are city and county sustainability officers, uh, cyber infrastructure data managers working for those kinds of cities, uh, individual nonprofits who are engaged in coastal restoration. Um, and then maybe, Nicole, you want to talk a little bit more about some of the individual communities specifically that you've worked with throughout the region? Right. The um, Another interesting partner that we've um, pulled in on this Southeast project is the National Park Service. So they have a lot of um, infrastructure, national seashores that are at risk um, along along the coast here, um, uh, industry. So some of the larger consulting firms are are joining and um, wanting to be able to provide that information to their clients. And then, you know, some of the local municipalities, you know, these coastal communities, that, yes, there are a few um, names that we can all rattle off when we start thinking about coastal flooding as we've already done, Miami, Charleston, Annapolis. They have staff, they have, they have big mm. uh, budgets and people to help with this. These small beachfront communities, they don't. There's, some of these towns only have seven people on their entire staff. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's the flood, if there is a floodplain manager, that's typically the person that we're working with. But, you know, it might be the building official, the mayor, the, um, the, the public works director. So all the city council people, they've all reached out to us with different needs. But really, the goal for all of them is the same. And that's to be able to know what is the water level in my backyard? One of my favorite stories is how this all started here in the low country of South Carolina is the board of directors was um, kind of uh, commiserating about one of these recent flooding events a few years back. And the, the mayors were saying, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night. I did not know what was going on. I had to get out of bed and look out the window and try to see if my town was going underwater or not. I just want to be able to look at my cell phone, know it's not and go back to sleep. So that was a fun uh, um, experiment for us to kind of try to take that request from them and turn it into a decision support tool. Why hasn't NOAA or the federal government done more of this themselves? You know, um, why, why, why is there such big gaps between where they have sensors? Do you guys have any insight or, or thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And ultimately, it comes down to funding and you know, deployment of, of um significant infrastructure. When NOAA goes out and installs a tide gauge, it's maybe a $500,000 installation. It has several redundant different ways to measure water level. And there's very good reasons for that. We're not, we're certainly not dinging NOAA. We see them as collaborators and partners in all of this as opposed to a competitor. What we're able to do is provide a different service. And so when NOAA installs those very expensive tide gauges, they're meant to be in place for 50 years and also provide double 
use data for long-term sea level rise trends. What we're doing is answering kind of a different question. It's more of that, what is the water doing right now in my backyard? And how does that help me plan for the next month, for the next five years, moving toward those 10 to 15 year sea level rise projections? So a lot of times the federal government gets a bad rap for being slow to adopt new technologies. Um, but when they do, they, they do it rapidly. And so we're, we're fortunate to have a good relationship and partnership with NOAA um, one of the divisions of NOAA is the Integrated Ocean Observing System, and in the southeast, that is administered by Socorro, the southeast uh, consortium to, to administer this. And so we're funded now on a five-year term, along with some other collaborators, to help develop what a, a hyperlocal water level network looks like that isn't giving maybe that third decimal place accuracy that a $500,000 uh, station would, but is providing that that gap information that is becoming more and more important, and the spatial variability between those tide gauge stations that um, that we're hearing is needed by town managers and municipalities. Mm. And I want to circle back, Nicole, to you talking about these really small communities that only have a couple staff people, and that they want to have you know sensors like this. Um, what other than being able to look in the middle of the night and know if their their town is going underwater or not what else are those really small communities hoping to kind of do with this data and and better understanding of the tides there um they have a, they have a lot of plans so uh, most of the communities here have already written sea level rise adaptation plans so they've addressed the fact that Coastal flooding is one of the most significant challenges that they're trying to manage right now in their communities. And they identified, you know, when these plans were written before uh, this, before they even knew that they could purchase a sensor of their own, they um, noted the gap, the needed gap to fill being data, right? They, they knew they didn't know, they knew what they didn't know. Um, so, so being able to install these sensors for them and kind of check that box on these sea level rise adaptation strategies has been a great win for them to begin with. Now, what will they do with the data now that they're ha now that they have it? Um, so, a couple of different things we've mentioned, kind of that emergency response element. There is now this benchmark that's been set, particularly with this event we had over the last weekend, and the communities know well. The water level, you know, that 8.7 foot tide or whatever it was for your particular community got within six inches of our seawall. So we know if we are, if we see an event forecasted for that magnitude again, we know the steps that we need to take and we can put that emergency operations plan into place. They're also thinking about using it for more long-term strategies. For example, marsh restoration. You know, we hear the term living shorelines a lot nowadays. Um, we've done a great job restoring our beachfronts with wide beaches and high dunes, which is a great strategy for mitigating coastal flooding, not so much on the backside of the islands or the estuarine communities. So having this availability of water level data is going to help them plan for what elevations we might need to think about raising our marshes, right? What protections are needed on the backside of these communities or the estuarine shorelines to help them. And then finally, um, the, the beachfront communities are the, the ones that are able to afford this. They have, they may only have seven staff people, but they have some staff <laughs> to handle it. But then you go right across the causeway in a lot of these places and you're in some underserved communities. So these are some critical areas that kind of get back to the mission that Brian talked about in the beginning that I'm excited to expand into 
to really help uh, serve this data and these predictions and the emergency plans with some of the communities that maybe don't have the resources to do those kind of things. Hmm. Well, you, you set up my last question for you guys uh, perfectly there, and that was about that that phrase of democratizing access to ocean data. Um, and just a little bit more about what, do, what does that mean and why is that important to you, to you as a team? Yeah, launched from an academic research lab working with nonprofits here in Hawaii. It's ingrained in our DNA. I mean, it, it, it's, a, you know, it, it's a story. It's a part of our mission. Um, it's, it really means getting the data in hands of folks who need it the most. And you know, here in the U.S. and a lot of places, we're just starting to see early accelerated effects from climate change. But around the world, this has been happening for ages. And the effects are oftentimes impacting the communities who aren't poised to deal with it as well as some others. Um, by you know, 2030, the national median high tide flooding events are probably going to increase by two to three times and five to 15 times by 2050. Along the U.S. coastlines alone, there's $120 billion of real estate that's at risk of flooding maybe twice a month by 2050. And the communities need access to be able to start to plan for how to approach this. Because as we've seen, it can't happen at the federal government level. It has to happen from the community level. And the first way to start thinking about planning for mitigation is to actually have local information on the physical environment. How, how high are we seeing today? What does a 40 knot wind storm look like as it approaches and storm surge on top of different tides? If we're getting 10 inches of rain in a, in a, um, you know, in a bomb cyclone event, what does that mean at a high tide versus a low tide or a spring tide versus a neap tide or a king tide? And so all of the data that we don't have as of today is going to be much, much more meaningful in the coming years as we start to see increased effects and frequency of these kinds of events. And so being able to go out now and start to lay out the network of sensors with open access to data helps to inform those communities on the ground. Cool. And Nicole, could you could you comment on that too and, and maybe expand on what you mentioned about these these kind of underserved or disadvantaged communities or ones that don't have the same resources but have the same threat from from sea level rise and, and why this access to data is, is so important yeah the the um the way that i typically describe this is that the you know the knowledge is power and the data that are being collected by the sensors is really empowering the communities to be able to confidently take those next steps, be able to go to their councils, their their residents and, and say, these are the steps that we need to take. We need to make these investments because in five years, this is going to be uh, an even more critical problem, challenge for our community. The underserved communities, um, again, they don't have these plans in place, but in working with groups like Sephora, who Brian mentioned is funding um, this effort in the Southeast, working with our South Carolina Sea Grant. They're a huge partner for us on this effort and they have good connections um, with all the communities in the Southeast. We have a project in Beaufort, South Carolina. So they are in a, a very needed area for water level data in between Charleston and the Fort Pulaski Gauge near Savannah. Um, there are a number of wealthy beachfront communities. Hilton Head is down there. Uh, you have the city of Beaufort, and then you have a surround, all these surrounding sea islands where um, the residents 
the field that they are ingrained in the soil, right? They weave sweetgrass baskets. They, they're rooted like trees to that, those sea islands and they'll defend them and they want the information. They want to be empowered in the same way that the beachfront communities are. So that effort is underway. I don't know quite what it looks like yet, but we're really excited to explore that front here. Well, that's awesome. Good stuff. Well, yeah, I'm just I'm just stunned by uh, you know from the from the fish ponds in Hawaii to the, the low country of South Carolina, you know, and the and the whole Carolina coast here, kind of like my personal uh, migration story too. Um, after living in Hawaii for five years, and here I am on the Carolina coast. But uh, really good stuff. Great, great stuff as a as an ocean person, a surfer, and all that. I'm I'm real fascinated to keep tracking this. So Brian and Nicole, thank you both for what you're doing and for sharing the story here. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Hydroloop, the innovative water recycling system for homes and businesses. Use water twice with Hydroloop. Learn more at Hydroloop.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.